And I am a pastor in Omaha. I do love this church. And uh, four years ago, my wife and I were living in Lincoln, um, and we were doing college ministry at Nebraska Westland and UNL. All the smart kids go to Nebraska Westland. What it is, it's okay. Uh, so, no, it's okay. It's great. Huskers are great, too. Okay, so... Uh, so we uh, did ministry here in Lincoln. We loved it here in Lincoln. Uh, we had a great local church here in Lincoln. We prayed for this city. And, uh, and then the Lord did the unexpected. I had a friend named Gavin Johnson, and uh, he was at a large church in Omaha. He said, hey, man, uh, the Lord is calling me to plant a church. I said, really? You got a name? No. You got a building? Mm-mm. Uh, and he said, well, I want you to plant the church with me. And I said, okay, is there a salary? He was like, definitely not. Definitely not a salary. Uh, I was like, he's like, hey, man, I... My wife's pregnant at the time. She's been pregnant for about the last three years. It's a continued cycle. Anyways, but I said, <laughs> said, um, hey, is there any like health benefits? You know, I've got like a child on the way. He's like, dude, no, there's def- none of that. So I said, obviously, I made a decision over lunch. I said, yeah, well, dude, we're, I'm in. I love you. I'm going to plant a church with you. We'll figure it out along the way. I drove back onto I-80 to see my wife in Lincoln, our little house, and said, hey, babe, uh, I think I just signed us up to plant a church in Omaha. She was like, what? No, it jumped in. It was fine. We got over. We went to counseling. And so um, it's been a fun, fun ride. All that to say, when I woke up this morning and it was still dark out and I was just driving down I-80 to come here, uh, it was just worshipful for me, guys, just to remember how God has been faithful. You know, Jesus said, I, I, I'm building, I will build my church. And Jesus is building his church. In Omaha, we've seen um, real lives change because some people took a step of faith to help pioneer and plant a new church that would be in the city and work for the good of the city and for the glory of God. And it's mattered. Lives have been changed. And uh, Jesus promised that I, I'm able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I'm telling you, uh, it, I've had the joy of seeing him do that. And so when I'm driving down here this morning, it was, my heart was just filled with gratitude. Have you ever had that moment where your heart is just filled with gratitude at how good God has been, the story he's authored, and the way that I got caught up with the wrong people um, absolutely ruined my life. And so what I mean by that is a bunch of pastors that are just weird. So uh, I, I love you guys. Uh, you probably, I'm, I'm kind of on the back end. I get to be a part of an advisory team for City Light Lincoln, which means I get to come and uh, drink coffee with Austin and Mo regularly and talk to them about what God's doing here. And uh, I, I, I'm like the weird, creepy uncle on Facebook, and I am so sorry. Like I for City Light Lincoln's page, you might notice, like, I will literally like anything you put up on your Facebook page. Like, we're having a work project. Boom. Like, like, like heart. You know, like, I'm just going a little weird. And so I'm that creepy dude in Omaha. I'm so sorry. Uh, but I'm, I, I think your pastors are ridiculous in the best way possible. I absolutely love them. Uh, Austin was, uh, I met him when he was a college student at McCook Junior College because he couldn't get into any real schools. And so... Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. They're like, we're never having him back. Never, never. Um, But I met Austin, man. He was a young college student, and I was doing college ministry. And um, it has been so fun to see this dude grow. And, uh, you know, one of the things about Austin is he has just this incredible amount of joy. And let me just tell you, church, your pastor doesn't have joy because he's a pastor and because he puts his Jesus face on for two hours. Like, this dude has a joy because Jesus Christ has saved him from some things and written an amazing story. Yeah, you can clap for that because his joy is bigger than his circumstances. And uh, it's real. And we love you, man. And so fun to see you. We miss you in Omaha. Our church is not the same without your crazy energy. But, uh, man, it's so fun to see God do uh, use you guys here. And uh, Mo and I go back to when we were at Wayne State, which is really the Harvard of the Midwest. And uh, it's really hard to get in, open enrollment. Anyways, anybody can get in. Why'd you go to, why'd you go to Wayne? That's the only place that would let me in. Anyways, uh, let's not talk about it. So, 
uh, I met Mo when he was in college. We were both students at Wayne State. And uh, man, this dude, so much growth in both of our lives. I can't believe that Jesus is letting us be a part of what he's doing. I have no idea how they let us become pastors. We had to start our own churches because no one would hire us. Anyways, uh, but man, this guy is the real deal. And um, over the last, over a decade, I've watched Mo go through some incredible things uh, that would really break the faith of some. Um, He's buried loved ones. He's seen people lose battles to addiction. He's seen the world press on this man in some real ways. And so behind his smile and his beautiful family is a story of a man who's walked through some real pain. And and I've had the journey of walking with him in some of those really hard moments. And um, here's why this is good news for you, church. You have a pastor who's joyful and a pastor who will persevere And let me tell you, this is an amazing part of your story. Your church is growing and God is good. And yet, there will be moments that will be hard in this church. And um, to have a pastor whose joy is rooted in Jesus Christ and to have a pastor whose confidence is in Christ even when things are hard and won't push away from the table, that's good news. You want to go into battle with those kind of men, amen? So can we clap for these guys one more time? Love these guys. Love you guys, love you guys, love you guys. Really, really fun. All right, so we're not here to talk about me or Mo or Austin or how amazing Austin's hair is. I had hair like that, and then I planted a church. It goes away, stresses you out, okay? Uh, that's what I look like before kids. Anyway, so, so uh, we're here to talk about Jesus and get into his Bible, and uh, you guys are in the core team season, and the core team season is kind of like before you start playing real football games, you go to camp, and you figure out what are the plays we're going to run, what are the things that are going to define us. Really, that's this season for you guys. You guys are in a season where you're just trying to figure out what's going to be the culture of this church. Jesus, what kind of unique church do you want us to be? How do you want us to serve our city? What do you want our ministry philosophy to be? How do you want us to look at one another and love one another? So you just, uh, you got to have the right expectations for the core team season. Um, you're not going to have the slickest worship service. Um, the building is going to be under renovation. Uh, your pastors are going to still have to learn how to preach a little bit. Like I just this last year, I stepped in front of our congregation and said, the first two years you let me preach the Bible, I just want to say I'm sorry. It was so awkward for you. It was awkward for me. Anyways, and they all clapped. They literally were like, yeah, you were horrible. So maybe you, (laughs) they put me on payroll for two years. Thank you. Um, But, but you know, you're still working things out and um, things can be messy and things are not perfect and you don't have the best program in the city and that's whatever. But this is an incredibly significant time in your church. Like, the, the way your church starts really sets the foundation and the DNA of how, what kind of church you're going to be for the next several decades, and, uh, and it just matters. And so I want to tell you, more than you guys just figuring out how to have a better worship service or how to sing better, how to preach better, how to start some new ministry programs, this season isn't about all of those things. This season is about God implanting in you a vision to be used by him to build his church in this community. This is, a, this is about you guys becoming a family. Like the, like the way you love each other. They said, by the way you love each other, we'll know you are Christians. Like you can't be a fruitful missional church and be strangers. You've got to be a spiritual family. And so what God's doing in this season is making strangers family. What God's doing in this season is giving you a heart for this city, to be in the city for the good of the city, not to ignore the needs of the city, but to incarnate the the city and bring Jesus Christ to every crack and crevice of your city. What God's doing in this season in you is birthing a vision 
in you to say, God, what if you use this little church family to actually usher in the kingdom of God in a new way in this city, that hundreds more would come to know Christ and experience the joy of Jesus Christ. This season is incredibly significant. So don't judge it because the carpet's got stains on it. Judge it by saying, God, you're doing so much more than renovating a building. You're putting a vision in our hearts that absolutely matters, amen? And so uh, don't skip through this season. It's a valuable season. It's a fun season. And today, we're gonna be preaching through your core values. And uh, we're gonna start in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 11 and 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up there. And uh, the reason we're in the Old Testament, we're going to talk about one of your core values, which is down. You have four core values, down, up, in, and out. The first one is down, which is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that all of Christianity starts with the initiating power of God. So uh, one of the things that Jesus said is, I came to seek and save the lost. What that means is that our story with our relationship with God doesn't start with us trying harder to do better and get better. It starts with Jesus coming to initiate and pursue us. He's the hero. It's about what Jesus did for us, not primarily about what we'll do for him. So we're going to look at that, but we're going to look at it from the Old Testament. And so my heart this morning is um, just to help us discover how all of the Bible shows us pictures of Jesus. You know, I want to preach the gospel to you out of the Old Testament. Because I want you guys to see that Jesus doesn't just show up in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus and pictures of Jesus and promises of Jesus are in the Old Testament. And uh, we don't want to read over those and miss those. Because they're beautiful and help us understand uh, in more uh, detail uh, Jesus when he shows up in the New Testament. So let's go to the Old Testament. Let me preach the gospel to you there. And then uh, I want to ask the question of how how does the gospel start to shape your rhythms as a church family? So we'll go ahead and jump in. Let me uh, summarize where we're at in the book of Exodus. Uh, since we're kind of just jumping in, uh, which is not typical, but we're jumping into the book of Exodus. So let me explain kind of where we're at. So in Exodus, God's people are in Egypt and they are being enslaved by an insecure man named Pharaoh. Uh, God's people were faithful to the command to go and be fruitful and uh, multiply. Um, one of the pastors in the church, Mozart Dixon, has been faithful to obey that commandment as well. So there's lots of offspring and uh, Pharaoh... Pharaoh uh, gets insecure. So Pharaoh looks around and sees all of uh, the Israelites uh, really multiplying, becoming numerous in number. And he looks around saying, if these guys wanted to take over, they could literally overthrow us in our own country. And so he's an insecure man with power, which is always a bad combination. And uh, so what his, he responds by doing is saying, I'm going to oppress God's people and I'm going to enslave God's people and I'm going to try to systematically kill God's people. And uh, so that's where we're at. Now, God's people cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, would you deliver us? Would you be faithful to keep your promise to take us into a promised land? And so God hears their prayer and he responds and he shows up. And so um, what happens is every time um, God's people cry out, uh, one of the things that happens between Pharaoh and God is God is going to work to deliver his people, okay? And the way he does that at first is he sings nine different plagues, okay? So if you guys remember this, he sings like moss and flies and all of these different plagues. And he turns uh, the water in the Nile into blood. And he sings all these different plagues. And every time, Pharaoh hardens his heart to what God is doing and says, I'm not letting your people go. So God raises up Moses and Aaron, says, let my people go. Uh, he says, no. And so that sets the stage for the 10th and final plague, which we're going to look at today. So the point one is the final plague. I want to talk about how God delivers his people. First thing, because in that story, we're going to see a picture of our story, okay? So Exodus chapter 11, verse 4 through 6 is the first thing we're going to read. Here's what Moses says. So Moses said, thus said the Lord, about midnight I will go out to 
in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of uh, Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Somebody say theme verse for 2017. Horrible, horrible, okay? Not positive, encouraging. Not most of y'all have that on a memory verse. The Lord struck down all the firstborn. But here's, here's what we need to see in this. Uh, the Lord doesn't discriminate. He's gonna strike down every firstborn. He says from Pharaoh's son to the slave girl's daughter, uh, it doesn't matter, um, popular or poor, somebody or not somebody, um, uh, it doesn't matter. The Lord, whether you're white collar or blue collar, is going to strike down every firstborn. And so if you are one of God's chosen people who had been crying out for the Lord to free you for 400 years in slavery, this was an amazing moment because God has promised to deliver you and now the Lord is moving to keep his promise to you, okay? So you would have thought, wow, I can't believe the Lord is so gracious, so faithful that he's gonna move on our behalf and defeat an enemy that we were unable to overthrow on our own. What an amazing thing. Now, some of you guys are sitting here thinking, okay, how could God really be good if he's actually going to strike down the Egyptian children? Like, does the means really justify the ends? How could that be fair? How could God be good? How could God be holy? How could God be righteous and yet take life? Anybody ever ask that question? Yeah, I've asked that question. Now, I want to slow down for one second, and this is, I know I'm preaching the gospel this week, but I don't want to preach around the Bible. I want to preach the Bible. Is that okay? And so we're going to, we're going to go into this issue. I'm going to take just a minute to slow down and do some basic discipleship. How could the Lord both take life and how could that be fair and how could God be just, okay? So let's ask the answer to that question. The first thing is we have to understand how the Bible speaks about God. What I mean by that is God reveals himself through his word. And so often we try to imagine the kind of God that we want to worship. That's soft and cute and patient and kind and accepting of everyone and who just loves but has no wrath. And yet... The Bible is not nearly as concerned with us trying to keep God politically correct. God is who he says he is, and he reveals himself in the word. He's not trying to be digestible for you. He's not trying to be cute and snuggly for you. God is who he says he is, and he's going to reveal himself through his word. So the question is, how does he reveal himself in his word? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, he's the creator of all things. We see at the creation account that God speaks everything that is seen into existence, So if you remember, he spoke to the sun, said, let there be light, there was light. So he speaks all that is seen and unseen into existence. Now, if you you created something, then you own something. And if you own something, then you have rights to that something, okay? So there's certain things that God can do that we can't do. He can give or take away life because he created life and he gave life. So I can't just go take life, right? You can't take your roommate just because he put his wet pillow or wet, wet towel, his shower towel on your pillow, you can't choke him out. Like, you can, you're going to jail, though, okay? Well, the Lord did it. But that's, you're not the Lord, so chill out, okay? So, so you can't do certain things because God created life. He can give and take away life. So Job chapter 1, verse 21, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, okay? Now, some of you guys are like, okay, that's neat. Okay, he created it all. He has rights to all. I get all that. But, like, really, how could God be good and still do that? And you ask that question, And that's a good question as Christians. We have to answer that question. We have to ask good questions. You don't turn off your brain when you worship Jesus. 
Okay, you don't just, just blindly put your faith. You actually have to go to the word of God and investigate the character and nature of God, which is, which is helpful. You have to also then be careful with your posture of your heart as you ask that question because it's incredibly po- possible that um, you can start to put God on trial and make yourself the judge and the jury. Just because God doesn't act in every circumstance like you would want him to act doesn't mean that he's not holy, righteous, good. Amen? And so you don't know all that he knows. At the end of the day, the Bible says his ways are above our ways. He's creator and we are creation. He's infinite and we're finite. And so when Job tries to talk to God um, and starts to complain, he says, dude, were you there when I hung the stars in the sky? You want to start popping off? You just got your bachelor's. Like, chill, you know? And so God is going to rightly acknowledge that you haven't been around that long and you don't see things from outside of time and space. That's his perspective, not ours. So we have to trust that. The last thing is, um, I'm gonna zoom way out and just this is maybe the most helpful way that I've answered this in my own heart is that um, one of the things the Bible says is all of us are sinful by both deed and by both nature. What I mean by that is you've actively rebelled against the God that you've created and that was primarily in your nature. Nobody had to teach you to do that. So um, one of the things that my son does is oftentimes he likes to go get himself, um, like we have a freezer in the bottom of the fridge. Okay, boom. That was because we planted a big church. I bought a freezer at the bottom. Anyways, that's something I did. Baller. Anyways, so, uh, so we have one of these freezers. You pull out. He got a little bomb pop, like the little cherry ones, his favorite one. He'll eat the little ice sticks or, ice sticks or whatever. And then he, has the, he leaves like this red stain all around his mouth. Have you ever seen a kid? He's got food. It's just evidence. And he'll come to me and I'll say, hey, son, did you get, did you get already have a little treat? He's like, no, I didn't eat anything yet. He'll come to me and say, daddy, I really want my first snack. I really want this little bomb pop. I'm like, really? Have you had one all day? No, I never had one. Then how did the red bomb pop syrup stuff all get over your face? I don't know. My face just does this. Really? You're a liar and you're going to hell. Anyway, so uh, that's what mom says. I would never say that. I would never do that. I would never, ever use that tone with him. Never, ever do it. I wouldn't because we love our kids. We do. We do love them. Okay. What I'm saying, though, is nobody had to teach my son how to lie. Nobody had to teach my son how to be deceitful. Nobody had to teach my son how to harden his heart against his father. Like, that's just how he came out of the womb, and that's all of us. So now, uh, if that's true, we're all sinful by both nature and deed, um, then the, the second thing the Bible would say in Romans is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Okay, so you, not only, when you, you guys know this, when you sin against somebody else, what happens in the relationship? It fractures the relationship. It leaves, it leaves a residue in the relationship. Same thing happens in your relationship with God. When you sin against him, there's a break, there's a fracture. It produces a death and a separation from him. And so what I'm trying to say is that none of us are entitled to another day. If the wages of sin are actually death, then God would be good and God would be holy and God would be fair and just to snatch, to snatch the breath out of our lungs right now. So the question has to change of how could God to how amazing is it that God would? Because, yes, he's going to destroy some, and he's going to pour out his wrath on some, but we are all deserving of the full wrath of God. Just that he would hold back his wrath and show some mercy is an incredible gift. Okay? So what, how this plays out in my life is I have a little girl named Lucy, a one-and-a-half-year-old girl, and I just already pray for her and dream about the day she's going to get married and what her life is going to look like. And, and I, just, I just, when you have kids, you just think, God, well, I, just, I really hope that I live long enough to see them grow up. Otherwise, I just wipe butts for four years, and I have no idea what happened, you know? And, uh, 
And yet I've come to the conclusion that in my own soul, I will bless the name of the Lord if he gives me those days or if he doesn't, because I'm not entitled to him. Right? I'm just not. I'm, God is not in your debt. He does not owe you something. You have not done to something to earn something from him. And so at the end of the day, we just say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And, uh, and so there, that's the big God theology. I wanted to not just skip over this passage. I wanted to walk us through this passage. Okay, so the next thing I want to zoom in and just say is there's a bigger narrative happening here. Um, God sees the Israelites as his family, not as a group of poor slaves. And um, you have to understand, earlier in this chapter, Pharaoh said all of the firstborn of the Israelites throw them into the Nile. So at this point, God's people are being oppressed. They don't have any protectors. They don't have any rights. Um, They're literally being systematically executed, and God is going to step into this story as a good father and defend his kids. And I want to show you that. So go back to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to look at where this all starts. Exodus chapter 4. 22 through 23 says this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son, circle, firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So I want you to catch this amazing good news, church. God calls Israel his firstborn sons. This is a group of penniless, poor, weak, broke slaves that are needy. They have nothing to their name, and God says... You're my son. You're my firstborn son who I delight in. In this culture, a firstborn son was everything. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm not going to choose to make you some servant. I'm going to choose to relate to you as a godly father. You see this? Now, I'm, I'm not a cage fighter. I'm not a violent dude. I'm not the dude that goes downtown in an affliction t-shirt and tries to, like, say, if you bump into me, I'm going to slap you in the face. That's just not me. Like, I like air conditioning, coffee, Starbucks, skinny jeans. I'm into those things, okay? So I'm just not that guy that wants to like just roid out on you. I'm not that dude. I mostly do push-ups in my basement to look good in bro bro tanks in the summer. That's really how insecure I am, okay? Now, um, but I do have a firstborn son named Paxton, okay? He's four years old. He's super fun. You'll see him today. He's got a little, there he is. He's got a little comb over. We love you, Pax. And if you came at my son, I would run at you and, and punch you in the throat, okay? Now, I don't know why, but I just felt like I've seen some YouTube clips of it. And, um, and I'm not a cage, I'm not a trained fighter, but I just watch a lot of Jason Bourne movies. And I really do feel like if you came at my son in that moment, some moves would come out, okay? They would just come out. And I want you to catch this because... Because I want you to see God's heavenly heart towards us as people. His heart beats for his people. And he's a God who protects his children. And so when God warns Pharaoh and says, let my son go or I'm going to defend my family. So in this final play, God is using his strength to defend his son and his people because he loves his people. He delights in his people. He's going to protect his people. And he's going to defeat the enemies of his people. Okay? Now... This points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because God is going to step in and say, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you mess with my people, I'm going to defeat you as the enemies of my people. And did Jesus not do that? Jesus is the greater one who came in victory, and he defeated our true enemies with an empty tomb and a wooden cross. Now, some of you guys are like, how did God really defeat my enemies? I got haters. I got roommates. I got bad bosses. I got family members that talk trash on me. And it's like, yeah, okay, we all have that. Jesus had that too. But your greater enemy, the enemy that Jesus warned you, remember how he said, there's a real enemy that has come to steal, kill, and destroy? 
Your real enemy is Satan, sin, and death. That's an enemy you could never overpower on your own. And Jesus came to defeat your truer enemies by the cross and through the tomb. What he did on the cross is he paid the penalty of your sin and he broke the power of sin so that you can walk in victory over your sin. And what he did with an empty tomb is he conquered death once and for all so that you have hope that death is not the end for you, my friend, but that you have the hope greater than this life, a hope that you'll go to the grave not fearful and afraid, but confident that God will raise you victoriously because Jesus Christ is our great victor. Amen? Bam. Oh, man, he's preaching gospel bombs. I might get an invite back. Come on. All right. What I do want you to see, though, is that God takes a group of slaves and he adopts them as sons and daughters. What I do want you to see is that we have a good, good father who defends the weak. What I do want you to see is that this is more than a story of God freeing some slaves. This is a story that reveals God's character towards his people. Don't miss that. The Passover lamb, Passover for Israel is next. I want you guys to, second point is that. So let me uh, talk to you a little bit about this. God's people are going to be spared from the wrath of God during Passover. Death is literally going to pass over their homes, and it is going to strike the Egyptians. And he's going to tell them to do some things to prepare for the Passover. But what I want to do is not just remind you of what God did in this moment. I want to tell you how he did it, because how he did it is so big, okay? God could have chose to release his slaves in any, his people in any number of ways, but he did it in a way that he would get the glory and God's people would be dependent on him. What I, what I want you to see in, in this story is that God doesn't come to his people and say, here's some swords, here's some weapons, here's some strategies, here's some ways for you to be strong enough for you to overcome your, your enemies on your own so you can fight your way out. Because he knew God's people, if he did that, would take credit for the victory and they would have no worship for him. They would have reliance on their self. See what I'm saying? So he's setting this up so that he is the hero of the story. He's the ultimate victor. So he's saving them from pride and he's giving the glory to God who's worthy because of his namesake and who he is. So let me just show you how he does this, okay? So go ahead, uh, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. He says, uh, first of all, he tells them to go get a lamb and then he describes what kind of lamb you're looking for. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, to prepare for Passover, very clear instructions. Go get a lamb, one years old, perfectly spotless, no physical defects. It has to live with you from day 10 to day 14, and, uh, and then you are to make preparations of it. Now, um, remember, this, the Israelites have lots of children. So in these homes, when you bring a lamb inside of your home, there would be kids inside of those homes. Now, I'm just trying to picture my family. If I bring a lamb home, like, that's not going well. Like, my wife, we're going to have words, okay? We're the kind of people that we like animals outside. We don't like animals inside, okay? Maybe you like animals inside. I just have never understood why you would let another animal poop in your house. I've already got kids trying to poop in my house. I don't want any more of that. So, anyways... All that to say is, I know my kids, they're not, they're, they're like suburban kids. They're not kids that like, we play with wild animals often. Okay, we go to the petting zoo, that's, that's the extent of that. But I know my kids, at first they would be afraid, keep the, keep the lamb at a distance, but they're curious and they're warm and they're fun and they're semi-aggressive and so they would, they would probably start to play with the lamb, name the lamb, move towards the lamb, and, and probably my son would probably try to ride the lamb and turn it into a horse, but he, I mean, we would, we would fall in love with this little lamb after four days, but this is an incredible picture because this lamb is not a pet for four days. It's a picture of a substitute. 
See, after four days, this lamb, this lamb would be killed uh, so that the ones that loved it uh, could live. This lamb would give its life so the people in the house could be spared from the wrath of God. This lamb would be killed so they could be saved. This is a picture of Jesus, the greater lamb of God, that would be our spotless, sinless, perfect righteousness. This is a picture of Jesus who would die so that we could be spared. You know, when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the very first time, John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. See, this little lamb in Exodus chapter 11 and 12 points us to a greater lamb who wouldn't just be physically perfect. That wasn't the deal. He would be morally perfect and his righteousness would cover our unrighteousness. His innocence would cover our guilt. His strength would cover our weakness and his blood would be shed so that we could be spared. So let me show you how we're, we're instructed to hide underneath the blood of the lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse seven. I'm gonna read the first part and then we'll skip down to 12, uh, verse 12 and 13. So chapter 12, seven, ver, verse seven and then 12 and 13. It says this. Then thou shalt take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Then we'll skip down to 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you. Uh, uh, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so once uh, the, the lamb was killed, the family would collect some of the blood and then they would spread the blood on the door frame and above the doorpost. And, um, and listen, this was to be more than just a sign. The blood on the doorpost was to be more than just a sign. God knew where his people lived and if all God needed was a sign, wouldn't have red paint sufficed? So we have to come to this and say, why the blood of the lamb? Why did the lamb have to be slain? Well, because God's people were just as deserving of death and the wrath of God as the Egyptians. See, church, this is not a story about God striking down the guilty and sparing the innocent. This is a a story of all being deserving of the wrath of God. And yet... The blood on the doorpost was a sign that a substitute had died in their place. A sacrifice had been made. The lamb had taken on death so that they could be spared and lived. And so that night, can you imagine being huddled up with your extended family members? You're looking up at the blood of the lamb. You're hearing your neighbors cry out as they, some of them are discovering, the Egyptians are discovering that their firstborn had been struck down by the wrath of God. There's screams. It says the Bible, there's never been a night like this, nor will there ever be a night like this again. So there's obviously chaos and loss. And this is different than any other kind of night you've ever experienced. Death is in your midst and life is in your midst. And wouldn't you be looking up at the blood of the lamb and be asking yourself, is the blood of the lamb sufficient for us? Will death really pass over? And the verdict that night is yes. The blood of the lamb is enough. The blood of the lamb is enough. See, Christians, let me press this in. We are not spared from God's wrath because of the intensity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. Death passes over us not because we're intensely faithful, but because the blood of the lamb is sufficient. I want you guys to understand, so many of you guys in this room, I wonder, you look up at the blood of the lamb and you hear this voice all the time speaking to you in the back of your mind. You're not good enough. Do you remember how far you went? You crossed that line. You did that thing. 
what kind of a Christian are you anyways? Look at your shallow prayer life. Look at the things that your heart gets excited for. You're worried about making more and a bigger house and a nicer yard and that day that you'll find that somebody that you think is going to satisfy. When are you going to treasure and hunger after Christ? Don't we all hear those? When, have you, how many times did you read your Bible last week? You listen to something but K-Love? You're not a good Christian. You don't have a fish on the back of your car? Probably not going to make it, you know? Now, I make fun of that voice, but don't we have that voice, that accusing voice in the back of our head that loves to tell us that we're not good enough? Let me tell you, the posture of death is to take inventory of yourself and of your shame. The posture of life is to look up at the blood of the lamb and to realize it's enough. You hear that voice? Don't defend yourself by your righteous deeds or your moral living or the way you worship and sing. You let the blood of the lamb be your defense. You look up and say, man, I am guilty, and yet I'm perfectly defended and spared because of the blood of the lamb died in my place. Listen, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you think that Christianity is for the good kids, the rule followers, the awesome people, but Christianity is for a broken group of slaves that stand underneath the blood of the lamb and say, it's enough. That's us. Isn't it amazing? What good news for us? It's good news for me because I'm a recovering addict I've got messy parts of my life, and I hear that accusing voice that says, look at what you've done, the evil that you've generated in your life, and I have to just say, I have to trust. The blood of the lamb is sufficient for me. You know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news that we are a church family that gets to hide under the blood of the lamb. Now, let me press this in, because this is more than just a theological doctrine that we believe. I believe that it actually shapes the way that we live as a church family. Okay, I think it actually changes our rhythms as a family, the way that we sing, the way that we give, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we love and worship Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is so much more than the message you believe to get yourself into eternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that shapes how we walk and live as Christians, okay? So let me talk to you about a few ways that I think the gospel should start to shape and change your church. The first thing is, is the gospel is gonna be front and center as the word of God is preached and heralded. Okay, so every week you're probably going to hear a semi-familiar sermon from Austin, Austin or Mo, whoever's preaching, and it's going to point you to Jesus. And here's why it's going to point you to Jesus. Because we believe all of the Bible is about Jesus, that the Old Testament points us to Jesus, that I told you the New Testament looks at Jesus or it looks back on Jesus. And so if we're going to be a Bible-believing church, we have to be a Jesus-exalting people. Now, you say, Chris, that's cool, I like the gospel, but when are we going to graduate from the gospel and really start to get to the deeper theological issues in the Bible? There are no deeper theological issues in the Bible. The Bible tells one story through 66 different books about how God created, how we rebelled, how God comes to seek and save the lost, and how we exalt and worship Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the lamb that is slain. That's in Revelation You're seeing a lamb in Exodus. You see the greater lamb in the book of John. You see the ultimate lamb on the throne in Revelation. Oh, brother knows his Bible. Y'all better watch out. Oh, y'all didn't know. Now you know. Now you know. Man. The most loving thing your pastors can do for you is not be cute and funny. The most loving thing they can do for you is point you to Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain on your behalf. Week after week, Christian, you never will graduate from a posture of needing the gospel. 
The minute these people stop preaching the gospel and they start giving you tricks or religious principles, you fire them. And you find men who love Jesus Christ enough to stand up here flat-footed and point you to Jesus. Okay? So as a church, if you're looking for some new tips and a new way to do Christianity, this is not going to be a great place for you. If you hunger after Jesus Christ and you need good news to know that you're forgiven and you're loved and you're accepted by the blood of the Lamb week after week after week, this is going to be a great place for you. Amen? Now, Christians, we want to preach the gospel to you because we believe it's the thing that builds you up and affirms your faith. There's nothing that stirs your heart for worship like understanding the gospel. There's nothing that sets you free from shame and guilt like the gospel. There's nothing that will shape you and help you understand your identity, worth, and value are not tied to your GPA or how much you have, but tied to what Jesus has paid for you. That's a message that will free you from some stuff. So Christians, you never outgrow your need for the gospel. Now, number two is if you want to be a family that grows, not just in your own faith, but expands and reaches other people, the gospel has to be preached. The Holy Spirit will do a work in this place. As you exalt the beauty of the Lamb of God, the Holy Spirit will whisper to people, it's true, it's true. You can trust in the blood of the Lamb. And the family of God will get bigger and bigger and bitter. Because I'm telling you, Jesus is beautiful, and his invitation to hide under the blood of the lamb is scandalous. It's nothing like religion. So different. And something in people's hearts crave the good news of the gospel. It's amazing. You're going to see people come to know Christ. People get baptized. The story is so much bigger than just you. I'm telling you right now, I hope it's good for you. But I'm telling you, people are going to be in this room that are going to experience Jesus for the very first time. Amazing, 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 amazing. Number two, it creates a culture. Last thing I'm going to say before I get off stage. Creates a culture where people are humble and hopeful. Humble and hopeful. Imagine you actually live through the Passover, okay? Now, would you walk with a sense of swagger if the reason you got saved was that there was blood on a doorpost from a lamb? Would you walk around like, man, yep, we showed Pharaoh, we're awesome. No, you would not walk around with a sense of swagger. You would walk with a spirit of humility because you realize that God did for you what you could never do for yourself. Now, the reason I'm pressing into this is some people in this room, you're rule followers, and that's awesome. You're achievers, and you're doers, and you're the people who didn't drink or date girls who do, okay? And that's, I'm excited for you. God has spared you from some consequences because you probably didn't do some dumb things, and that's amazing, okay? If you got a scholarship to go to school, you're a rule follower. That's exciting. You didn't have to pay for it like me. But anyways, the problem is, the problem with people who love to obey the rules and talk to you about how they memorize the right verses and how they were a Christian from when they were a young kid, the, all that is fine and that's good, but just don't miss the fact that we're all saved by the blood of the lamb. There's no varsity and JV. There's no, I was raised in the right home and you're the bad kid and I'm the good kid and let's play this comparison game because my marriage is nicer and your kids are more ghetto and so God must love me more. My kids are ghetto and they'll choke slam your little soft kids. Everybody want to be nice until you get bullied. Anyways, then my boy going to step in for you. Anyways, so. Do you understand what I'm saying, though? Jesus, Jesus had nothing nice to say to self-righteous people. The people who missed Jesus were the people who were impressed with themselves. You can't exalt Jesus Christ as your Savior and think you're awesome. You're going to hide underneath your resume or his righteousness, one of the two. Number two, I think it creates a hopeful people. It creates a hopeful people. The thing I want to say about this is that this is my story and that so often I broke the rules and I went too far and I always envisioned God as an angry, distant father because I knew I wasn't part of the good kids club. 
And for some of you guys in the room, you understand what shame and guilt really feels like, and you don't actually have hope that the blood of the lamb is sufficient. But if you lived through the Passover, you would look and you would say, man, I have no doubt the blood of the lamb is sufficient for me. And so Christian, if that's where you're at, I just wanna preach the gospel and I want you to have confidence. I don't want you to live your life in anxiety or insecurity. I want you to live your life in confidence that the blood of the lamb is enough. Remember how Jesus talked to the thief on the cross? He said, surely today you'll be in paradise. That man did nothing but believe in Jesus Christ. His faith was enough in the savior of the world.